morning, church. How we doing? Good. Man, I uh, felt pretty proud. I actually timed it right that time walking up here. <laughs> Sometimes that's difficult to do. There's that awkward like three-second pause. Everyone's like, what's going to happen? Okay, we're good. All right, so I'm glad you guys are doing well this morning. Glad that you guys showed up to uh, Destiny Church this morning. We're honored to have you here with us to worship our King with us uh, together as a body. I love about the church that we get to come together as a unit, as the body of Christ to worship our King. Um, you know, this, this Christian life is a continual daily thing that we all do, but when we gather together, there's something powerful. And uh, this is, has nothing to do with the message, but in Ephesians, it talks about the fact that when we come together as the body of Christ, that we are filled with the Spirit as we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, we get to see the, a greater manifestation of the Spirit of God in our midst as we submit ourselves to Him and to each other. Um, it's such a beautiful thing when we operate as the body of Christ, but that's just been on my mind lately. But uh, anyway, we're in James today. So uh, uh, before I get into that, though, I just want to greet any guests in the room, anyone that's visiting with us today. want to say welcome to you guys. Thankful that you guys would choose Destiny Church to worship with us. And uh, if you haven't before, fill out one of those welcome cards in the seat back in front of you. Um, you can turn that into our lobby at the welcome table, and they'll have a small gift for you there. Um, but this morning, uh, we've, been, we've been walking through the book of James as a church. Um, these past couple Sundays, we've had some awesome and excellent messages from Pastor Ryan and Ethan. Um, give it up for them, as I know they've poured into that time to study. It takes a lot of time sometimes to really pour into it to understand what it means so that we can accurately apply it. Um, we don't, we don't want to just say the first thing that we hear or read in the commentary. We want to prayerfully consider, what does this say? What does this mean? Because it should have profound impact on the way that we live our lives. Um, because we don't want to just hear the word, we want to do the word. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Uh, but James chapter 2, um, we're going to be talking about actually a pretty, honestly, it's a pretty controversial passage. Not because the Bible uh, is contradictory or has any issues within itself, but because we as people are flawed and we don't always understand what it means. Um, so we're going to be talking about something that has been debated, that's been argued, and uh, I, I would like to open it up to, to show you multiple views of what this might mean, uh, but from the context, I hope that we can agree and, and see what it means for us, because I think it has, uh, again, really profound impact on the way that we live as believers in Christ. But um, to catch us up a little bit, James is the half-brother of Jesus, um, and he is writing. Uh, he's been a pastor, and the, the church in uh, Jerusalem has been scattered from persecution. So we, we've read a lot about trials and about temptations, about things that they've dealt with. And James is writing this very practical letter. It's almost like the, the wisdom literature of the New Testament. It's like the, the book of Proverbs of the New Testament in some ways, because he hits so many practical things about our daily lives, um, which is awesome for some of us, and then sometimes it's not awesome because it's like, come on, James, you, you should align with my perspective on that trial. <laughs> like, I don't want to have, uh, you know, endurance. I don't want to be joyfully walking through this. This is difficult. But James, he can be a heavy hitter for sure, um, but his, his desire is to see believers mature in their faith. James is writing not for the sake of unbelievers to come to be born again, but for the sake of believers to grow up in their faith. That, that's why James writes this letter. So as he's writing this, he talks a lot about faith, about trials, and how those are shaping us to become more and more like Jesus. Um, so today our passage is James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. 
But I want to read all the way down to verse 26 to give the whole context, and next week we'll pick up in verse 18 through 26. But um, go ahead and turn with me there if you're not there already. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But James chapter 2, verse 14, it says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up, uh, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified um, by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Um, I want to pray before we dive into this, but I want to ask something from you guys as we jump into this passage. I want to ask and give you guys a moment to pray. Um, we, we believe that the, the Bible is inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, that, that men wrote as they were um, being told what to speak by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they were writing these words down directly from God, from His Spirit. But we don't only believe in d- divine inspiration We believe in divine illumination. Jesus talked about in John. He said to his disciples that he was going to, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. So so we know that the word of God is alive and it's active. And we don't have to to ask um, primarily others or commentaries. What we can do is we can directly ask God, will you reveal what your word says? Because it's not like any other book. We can actually engage in a conversation with the author as we go along. So I want to pray with you guys, and I want to ask you guys that you would pray um, that, God, would you show me, um, first of all, what this means? Can you help me to understand what your word is saying here? Um, And then secondly, can you help me to apply this to my life? And as you do that, I ask that you pray for the people right around you as well. So um, I'm going to pray. As I'm praying, I ask you guys to be involved and be praying for those, for yourself and for those around you. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We're so grateful for the opportunity to come together just to uh, bring your name praise, God, to, um, to grow in our understanding of, of your word. But God, we, we want to we rightly understand it so we can rightly apply it. We, we don't want to become puffed up in our heads but not apply it to our lives, Jesus. I pray that you would teach us all the way down into our hearts and help us to live uh, as, as people who reflect your character and your love to the world around us. Jesus, we're, we're lost without you. We're so grateful for the cross, the fact that you would die in the place of sinful, undeserving people like us so that we can be made right in your sight. Lord Jesus, I pray that you give us clear understanding, that you give us clear application from this time that we have together in your word. In your name, Jesus. Amen.
Um, well, as all of you guys probably know, most of you know, um, Pastor Mark, uh, you know, he's pretty into the fitness, CrossFit. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of a beast, you know, he's, he's, a, he's jacked and all that. And so whenever I started on staff here, uh, pretty much immediately, he and Pastor Ethan were um, encouraging me to go along with him to the gym. And uh, so I was like, okay, I, I guess if that's what it takes to be a pastor, I don't know. Um, but so we started heading over to the gym and uh, for the first few times they just let me go in because they already have memberships. And then um, after going only a couple of times, I guess Mark really wanted to show that he has faith in me or to make bribe me into continuing to work out. I'm not really sure, but uh, he bought me a pair of Nike shoes uh, just to go work out in, which I've used for other purposes. Don't tell him. But uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so they convinced me to get a gym membership, um, which is uh, actually yeah, I have the thing still on my key ring. It's a miracle because. I, I haven't needed it uh, for a while, but uh, you know, I thought of, I, I actually used to be pretty into fitness. You'll have to take my word for it, but uh, I, I really did like working out a lot for, at one point in my life, and uh, I really kind of, you know, just got out of it, but I thought about, you know, everyone's always posting their fitness journey. I thought about posting my, like, journey, because there's not really any fitness in that. But, uh, you know, just like before and after, it's like my regression instead of my progress. It would just be my regress. But um, that would be weird. But everyone's telling you to be yourself, so I don't, I'm trying to do that. But um, anyway, but uh, for whatever reason, you know, I just kind of dropped off the wagon, stopped working out. I'm in not great shape currently. Um, but, you know, I, actually, I was just thinking about this uh, last night one of the students arm wrestled me and the rest of the night my stomach was hurting. I was like, well, that doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> it's like, like, wow, okay. So anyway, I know all of you will probably come up to me after and tell, like, tell me like, hey, it does say physical training is of some value and try to get me to work out. I already know, so it's okay. You don't have to tell me. But uh, that all being said, the gym membership that I have um, doesn't really profit me anything if I don't take full advantage of it and actually go work out. Um, having a gym membership um, can give me full access to that gym, but it, it does not make me by default fit, right? Um, it's worthless if I don't actually go there and put in the time and the work. So I think that James really, he, he asks, he starts in verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers? That word for good really means profit. What, what's the profit in, in saying you have faith, but if you don't have works to follow with it, what, what are you gaining by having faith that's not followed up by works? So that's what James is really going to be communicating. Um, but I, I want to walk us through just a few quick things. And, and the four things that I want to cover this morning are uh, the conflict of, around the passage, not within the Bible, obviously, but around what people understand about this passage. Uh, the context, that will really help us. The three uh, most important rules of Bible interpretation is context, context, context. Um, always look at the context because that tells you what, what, what does it mean isn't up to our own interpretation. Um, but you can see it as you look at what came before, what came after, and uh, that will help us to understand it. And then finally, uh, so conflict, context, then we'll dive into the content, uh, content of these four verses and then finally, uh, we'll conclude it. So uh, give me a moment here. But 
So, first of all, conflict. You guys may have heard this before, but a lot of people have talked about how it seems like James kind of seems to disagree with Paul on, on this issue of justification, on this issue of faith and works. Um, let, me, let me show that to you real quickly. Um, James, uh, sorry, Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith. Everyone say that word apart. Apart from works of the law. So you're justified by faith apart from works of the law. James said that you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see how that kind of seems like a contradiction? Okay, let's look at another part. Uh, Verse 14, the second question he asks is, after he asks um, faith without works, he said, can that faith save you? Well, if you read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it would seem like the answer to that would be yes. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So doesn't that seem like a, li- a little confusing maybe? Because um, he says, can that faith save you? It's seemingly the answer to his question is no, the way that he's asking it. But then you read Paul say that by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. So let me, let me tell you, um, a few different ways that people have tried to reconcile uh, this, this confusion between James and Paul. Um, well, first of all, I actually want to give you an example of it. So, so Martin Luther, who knows who Martin Luther is by chance? Um, he's a church reformer um, who, he was a, actually an Augustinian monk, so he spent a lot of time just, he was actually, he grew up like terrified of the wrath of God. Um, apparently lightning struck near him one time when he was younger, and uh, he thought that if it was because of the sin that he was living in. So he was like, all right, God, I will live my entire life for you. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do everything right. So he became this Augustinian monk, and he's constantly studying, and he learns Greek. And at one point, as he learns Greek, he's, he's translating uh, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, and he begins to understand that justification comes by faith. That's by God's grace, but through faith that we receive um, salvation. So Martin Luther uh, was a part of the church at Rome, and they were not teaching that at all. So he was like, wait a second, guys, you guys are, you guys are missing this. Like, this says that um, we're not justified by our works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so it was that revelation that broke the chains of legalism in his life. And as awesome as this story is, Uh, Martin Luther actually later in his life, as he was studying James, he came to the conclusion that James must not be in the Bible. It must not be a biblical text because it clearly contradicts what Paul said. That was James' understanding. Well, us today, we know that the Bible is complete, that God's preserved his words into 66 books um, that we call the Holy Bible. And uh, James is in it, um, if you haven't noticed. So, James is a part of that. So clearly Martin Luther had an issue. He was, he was off on something. There was something missing in his understanding of how these two are reconciled. Um, so I want to take us really quickly through three perspectives about the relationship between faith and works. Um, first of all, I, I think I've got a slide for that as well. Uh, faith plus works. Works have a role in earning or in keeping your salvation. So the way that they understand this text is to say that faith without works is dead, 
So you're justified by faith. You, you placed your faith in Jesus and you're saved. But that's, uh, some people believe if you have to earn it with works, that it's in, um, that's, that's just like a down payment is your faith. But you have to continually do works, confess sins, do different things uh, for that salvation to actually be real. Okay, that's one perspective. Or, or, or within that, even uh, keeping it, um, to keep your salvation, you have to continually uh, progress in good works and faithfulness as a result of your faith in Christ. Is that all making sense so far? Yeah. So that's one perspective. Two, faith plus works um, equals works are a necessary proof that our faith is real and genuine. So this is actually probably a majority view, especially uh, within Protestants and different denominations um, in America. We would, we would say, a lot of us um, would say that faith or works don't save you, but if you don't have works as a result, did that, was that faith actually real? Was it a genuine faith if it didn't produce works? Um, before we talk any more about that one, I want, I want to mention the last one. And that's that works make faith profitable. That's the relationship between faith and works. That works have nothing to do with our justification to earn, keep, or prove the fact that we've been saved. But they're merely uh, how we uh, can be, how we can show our works to God at the judgment seat of Christ. That we in this life are going to, we have the opportunity in receiving a gift. God took a risk in giving us this beautiful gift of grace, uh, knowing that we would have the option to either obey or disobey. I mean, I think all of us would agree, sometimes we obey, sometimes we disobey, right? Um, there, there is a difficulty in walking this thing out, but justification by grace through faith says that it's nothing that we do at any point in our lives that could ever earn us a standing with God. It's only the grace of God. So I, I want us to... I just wanted to show you that, and then we'll kind of see throughout the text a little bit uh, more. But I want to get into the context now of, of James chapter 2, and kind of backing up to, you know, we heard Pastor Ryan give a message about partiality. And uh, these believers were pointing out, uh, were either loving or treating people nicer or less nice uh, based on their uh, financial status or all kinds of different things were going on, um, but also... Uh, at the end of his message, but also in Pastor Ethan's message, we heard about how they weren't only being partial with people, but they were being partial about sin. You guys remember that? They would, they'd be like, oh, if you commit adultery, but you don't murder, and, uh, you know, either one, you're breaking the law, and if you're, you've broken the law, you're a transgressor. You, you've broken all of it. If you've broken one command, you've broken the whole law of God. It's like somebody uh, that's hanging over a cliff with ten, uh, a 10 link chain, and you don't have to break all 10 of those for that guy to fall, right? Just one of them has to break and you've broken the whole thing. So that, that's the point he's making is don't be partial with your sin. But then he says in James chapter 2, verse 12, this is really important for us to understand where he's heading in this next passage. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ as believers for our works. 
Um, so, so that's what James is saying right here in verse 12. He says, so speak and so act. So our, our words and our deeds uh, as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty, the law of liberty, uh, pastor Ethan did a great job explaining that to us and helping us to see that we're not going to be judged, uh, based on our sin. If we put our trust in Christ, right? Our sin was done away with by the cross. His blood has covered all of our sins, but as believers, we're going to give an account of our lives to God, of what we've done with the gracious gift that he's given us. How, how did we use the time that we had in this life after we uh, put our faith in Jesus? What, what did we do to invest in the kingdom? Um, so let me, let me read a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So um, James, before he gets into this passage, he's talking about this judgment seat of Christ. He's saying, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. Y'all with me still? So if you're going to be judged under this law of liberty, knowing that your sins are covered, but we're going to give an account of our works and whether good or evil, we're going to receive in the body uh, from the Lord. He's going he's gonna to judge us based on those things. So that's, that's the context leading into where we're at. But then he asks this question, what good is it? Where's the profit of if we say we have faith, but we don't have works? What's the use of that? Is that something that's, gonna, that's going to prove effective in this life or in the life to come or, or not? Um, I think before I get any further, I, I need to... Ex- explain uh, the fact that a lot of the controversy of this passage comes from the word uh, save, right? Because it's like, can that faith save him? Um, when we hear the word save, we're, we're, most of us naturally think, go to heaven when you die, right? Um, James actually uses this word save. It's, it's the Greek word sozo, and it's used, used five times in the book of James. Um, one example is where he says the prayer of faith will save him, talking about praying for someone that's sick. But usually it's translated heal because that's the point of what he's saying, right? So does that mean the prayer of faith will help someone go to heaven when they die or they're just going to be healed of a physical ailment? Does that make sense? You can, can you see another variation of how the word save is used? Um, that's how we, we have to be good students of the word and understand that not every time we see a word used does it mean go to heaven when you die. Peter, he's drowning, and he says, Lord, save me. Is he saying, please take me to heaven after I drown? Or is he saying, please take my hand and help me not to drown? <laughs> yeah, he's saying, save me. Help me not to drown, Lord, please. That, that's, that's the point of uh, save in those contexts. So let's, let's try to understand what is it that, that James is saying in saying, um, can that faith save him? If he's talking about the judgment seat there, I want to point to the end of the passage, chapter 3, verse 1. Um, it says, not many of you should be teachers, uh, for you'll incur or you'll, you'll receive a stricter judgment. Where's that going to happen? Anyone know? At the judgment seat of Christ. So if what comes before and what comes after is talking about the judgment seat of Christ, is it fair to maybe consider that this passage also deals with Christians, believers, who he calls them in the, within the passage, and is asking them, Where's the profit in having this faith if you don't have works to back it up? This becomes a lot more practical for us because 
it goes from, um, oh, I'm saved. Yeah, I have a good enough work because that's just a natural result. It just happens. It's like, wait a second. If he's talking to believers and he's saying, where's the profit in believing in me if you don't do anything about it in this life? We're going to be judged and there's going to be a fire that consumes all of our works that weren't done for the Lord. They're going to be burned up forever, never to be useful for anything again. We'll be saved, but as through fire. We'll, we'll probably read that passage here in a little bit. But the point of that is, that just put a lot more on us. Not to, but here's what's beautiful about it. It doesn't put pressure on us to do good enough for God to love us or to save us. It does put pressure on us in the fact that God's been so gracious to me. How am I going to respond? What's my life going to be as a reflection of the goodness and the grace of God? And I believe that's what James is saying in this passage. It's such a powerful passage. Um, I got super mixed up in my notes. You'll have to excuse me for just a second so I can get caught up here. But um, James is really hitting on not just saying things, but doing things. He's talking about hypocrisy in the Christian life. A lot of, and really, if you look contextually, if he's talking about judging others right before this, he's saying, really, you should judge yourself. Um, if we're saying we have faith, but we don't have works to prove it, why are we pointing at other people and trying to say they did that or uh, they're not as good at that or pointing out that sin or that sin? Um, it's like, what well, we need to realize that we're all going to be judged before Christ one day. So stop judging each other, right? And let's take an honest look internally and see, do our works sh- display the faith that we have in Christ? Is it telling? Is it showing um, our faith that we have in Jesus. So I, I read this um, article. I forgot to reference it. I know that would not be okay if I were to turn in a paper to a teacher, but uh, hopefully you guys are all right with that. I can't remember where I got it. But anyway, um, it was about, it was a counseling website and it was talking about how can we stop being hypocrites. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting and really, it's amazing too, like we've talked about this before, but how Um, writing, even if it's not Christian literature, but if it's a study of anything that God's designed, a lot of times they come to the same conclusion um, that God has already spoken in his word, because obviously God's word is all true, and we sometimes can gradually see different things within that. But um, it says this, it says, to stop being a hypocrite, we must first examine our own moral code and determine whether there are any contradictions in it. Objective morality is the best tool to help us overcome hypocrisy. Thankfully, we all have that in this room, right? Um, Objective morality is the belief that meaning is not open for interpretation and that something is true regardless of who is involved in a situation. Um, So other tips in helping us to keep from being hypocrites. uh, It said, ignore what other people are doing and focus on yourself, right? Sound a little bit like what James is saying. Stop condemning others so quickly. Again, um, they were pointing fingers a lot, but they weren't looking internally. Um, Pinpoint context and and how it alters the way that you think or believe. And then he says, or then it says, uh, start paying attention to your cognitive dissonance. How many of you know that that phrase, cognitive dissonance? I can't even say it, so. Any of you? A couple of you? A few of you? Okay. Um, Cognitive dissonance is a mental conflict. I'm reading because I don't have all this understood, but cognitive dissonance is a mental conflict that occurs when your beliefs don't line up with your actions 
It's an uncomfortable state of mind when someone has contradictory values, attitudes, or perspectives about the same thing. We've all experienced this. I mean, you can pretend that you haven't, but we all have believed things that we haven't uh, actually followed through with in our actions and have felt these ways. But what are the effects of cognitive dissonance? Um, still part of this article. In the moment, cognitive dissonance can cause discomfort, stress, and anxiety. And the degree of these effects often depends on how much disparity there is between the conf conflicting beliefs. How much the beliefs mean to that person, as well as with how well the person copes with self-contradiction. Thanks to this discomfort, people may rationalize their decisions, even if they go against their beliefs. Steer clear of conversations about certain subjects, hide their beliefs or actions from others, or even ignore a doctor's advice. Obviously, this is... Um, and it says, in the end, all of these tactics just help perpetuate beha the behaviors, which they don't even really agree with anyway. Is that interesting to you guys? Th this is someone writing about... They, they came up with the term, but really it's just James saying, faith without works is dead. Um, I think James wants to take us on a similar journey where we go from judging others and speaking and acting um, ignorantly and selfishly and against other people. And we need to, as it says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. I would submit that the next chapter and a half is probably going to, I think it deals with both of those things at great length. So James says, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. And then he immediately starts talking about what we say and what we do in James 2. And then chapter 3, the majority of it is taming the tongue. Is that interesting to you guys? So James is setting up the context of what he's about to go into. Um, and he says, so speak and so act. So, so in context, here's what I'm teaching today. And I know um, I, I want you, all of you guys to know that anytime you hear anything up here or anyone else, if they have a microphone, that doesn't mean anything. The Bible is our final authority, not what I'm saying right now. So if, if there's something that I'm saying that's contradicting with this, then study it for yourself. Always take the time to do that. We're, we're not special or anything like that just because we're on a stage. It, that means nothing when it comes to the authority of the scriptures. Um, so I just want to say that, but I am teaching from the perspective that James is talking about a, an active faith. He's talking about a, a life full faith that actually um, produces good works, um, but not to be saved or not to prove that they're saved, but to uh, stand before God one day and give an account with works that won't be burned up. Does that make sense? So that's the perspective I'm teaching from as we go through this. But um, I want to jump into the content. So let's look at these verses uh, before we run completely out of time. So uh, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So again, we've got these two questions in verse 14. So let's look at the two questions and then the illustration in verse 15 and 16. The first question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. So again, where's the profit? What, what, what's the point of that? What benefit? What use? Those are all synonyms of this word here. What good is it? Um, and then the second question, can that faith save him? That word save, um, again, I pointed out it can mean a lot of different things, right? 
uh, preserve. It can mean to save from physical danger. It can mean to deliver. Um, there's a lot of different things that it means here, but in the context, can that faith save him? Well, if we're looking at the judgment seat of Christ, can that faith save the works that we produce? Or, or say, sorry, can that faith save anything because there isn't works to, that sh- to show that we produce them? Does that make sense? So um, let me say that a little bit better. Uh, can that faith save you if we're standing before God and we say, I have faith, but I don't have works. Is there anything that's going to be saved or preserved if I didn't actually do anything about my faith? Does that make sense? So that's, that's the question I believe he's asking, and I think you see that even better in verse 15 and 16, because verse 15 and 16, I thought it was really interesting. I kind of wrestled with it this last couple of weeks. I was reading it, and I was like, why is it not highlight faith? The illustration he gives of what he's saying doesn't highlight faith, just the work. Just, just doing what you say, not doing what you believe is, is what it seems like it's talking about. But I believe that's because faith is implied as be- he's writing to believers, um, he, he's believing, he knows that these are people who have put their faith in Jesus. So he knows that that's already in place. So now let me show you what, how pointless it is to say something if you're not going to do anything about it. So that, that's what I believe he does in verse 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister, again, terms used of other believers, how are they a brother or sister if they're not saved? Just trying to help you guys see that in the text. But if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them anything needed for the body. What good is that? That is a terribly sad thing to do. Can you, and uh, before you guys all amen that, um, I think that we do the same thing when we say, I'm praying for you, um, and then just pass up a need that we could actually help with. Like, like James is saying, like, what good is it if we say, we see somebody that doesn't even have enough clothes to keep them warm? They don't have enough food to keep their stomach full. And you tell them, you have the audacity to be like, hey, uh, go be warm, be filled. But then you don't actually do anything about it. It kind of sounds like you're a jerk. But, uh, <laughs> but I think that, yeah, we might not say those exact things like to that extent. But even like Pastor Ethan pointed out last week, he talked about you know, us totally ignoring people uh, that are asking for money or asking for help. We, we will like literally not even make eye contact because if you do, then they'll come over to your window and you'll have to have a conversation. God forbid you talk to someone that's in need to interrupt your day, right? And I'm guilty of it too. I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. Believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this in as well. But, but the point he's making is that there's so many things that we say that we don't actually do. And I think that that kind of faith is going to render us useless in the kingdom, the kind of faith that just believes in Christ but doesn't do anything about it in our relationships. Man, I've been so challenged about this because the whole time I've been studying, I'm like, God, I, can't, I don't want to preach a passage about faith and works and then just understand what it means and not be applying it. That is completely contradictory to what I'm even saying right now. So Lord, please help me to identify areas of my life that what I believed really does not dictate what I do. And I think if we're honest, that if we all look inwardly, we'll find those spots. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an area of your life that people in your family continually point out to you, but you keep shucking it off because you don't want to deal with it. Maybe that's an area where what your, your faith in Christ doesn't actually impact the way that you live. Um, maybe it's the way that you are defensive over, over, over things because you want to be justified in your actions and in your words. 
So you struggle when someone points something out in you. If we, if we, if we can't receive um, people pointing things out in us, may, maybe what we believe about Christ, what we believe about the gospel really should lead us to an incredible humility. Um, Jesus came and died in our place for every sin and every wrong thing we've ever done. And he gave us his fullness of life. Um, where he never failed, he gave us his imputed righteousness. That's what that's called. And in that righteousness, sometimes we have, we're, we're crazy enough to start thinking that we're some, something good and we can't receive uh, criticism or this or that because, no, I'm good. It's like, wait, we got to remind ourselves, what, what does this faith really believe? It's that Jesus is everything. I'm nothing apart from him. That's, that's really what we believe, but it's, Cognitive dissonance, or it's faith without works, if that doesn't uh, get applied to how we respond to people, to criticism. There's all kinds of examples. We might hit a couple more here in a minute, but that's the point um, that he's making. This illustration is if, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but don't actually do anything about it. What good is it? What good is that? Again, that's the same word, good, use, uh, useful, benefit, profitable. What good is that? Um, And then here in verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Trying to remember what time we get out of here. (laughs) Sorry, y'all. So faith without works is dead. I think that's that's another part where people, we hear that and like, man, um, before I jump into explaining that part, I just want to share a little bit about my own uh, testimony and my own uh, walk with the Lord. I got saved at a younger age, put my faith in Jesus, believe that he uh, is who he says he is, put my trust in, in him and on, in his work on the cross. I believed wholeheartedly that he died for me. That was nothing without him, and I, and I rested in that truth as a kid. Um, when I was a little older, uh, later teen years, 19, or really starting around 17, 18, 19, there's a few years there where um, I really did not live like I believed in Jesus. And, and I, I had spent day to day just, just wasting my time, wasting my life, really. Um, and I, uh, I won't tell this whole story just yet, but, but in that time, I would say that if James were to evaluate my faith, and he were to give me a diagnosis, he would say that it was dead. But how we understand that word dead, too, can dictate how we understand this whole passage. Would he call my faith dead because I never actually believed in Jesus to begin with? Because a lot of people take this and they say, see, the faith is just not genuine faith. It's fake faith. But I want to I challenge that real quick. Is that okay? Yeah. Can I challenge that? For, okay. When have we ever called something that's fake dead? A lot of people take this passage to mean it's not real faith, it's not genuine faith, it's not saving faith because faith without works is dead. Well, um, if you went, I heard this illustration, so I'm going to use it. It's not original. Just give them credit. It's Dave Anderson. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you went to a wax museum and you went around and you looked at everything, you're like, wow, everything's just dead. Uh, or sorry, everything's just fake. <laughs> sorry, I'm using the other side of everything. They're all, or wait, wow, I'm getting confused on my illustration. Give me a second here. <laughs> uh, 
Wow, I should go more on my notes. Sorry, guys. But uh, yeah, if you look, well, go in a wax museum, and yeah, you say they're dead. They were never alive to begin with, right? They're just fake. Um, on the other side of that, uh, we do hear the word dead used all the time of things that are inactive or not being useful or profitable, like go to a church and hopefully not this one, someone walks in and they're like, man, that church is dead. What do they mean? That it doesn't exist? That it's fake? Or that it's just not being useful? It's not being active? It's not actually reaping anything? Does that make sense? So, so James says faith without works is dead, and people are like, man, that must be a fake faith because they don't have the works to back it up. And it's like, no, our salvation is by grace through faith. And after we get saved, it continues to be by grace through faith. It is not our works before, during, or after our salvation moment that ever have anything to do with um, being justified and declared righteous before God. But as a result of the gracious gift that he's given us, James is saying we're going to stand before God, give an account. And, and, and a, lot of, a lot of people have an issue with saying that you don't have to do works after being saved because then it gets into that argument of, I didn't mean to go into this, but I guess I'm doing it. So um, it gets into that argument of like, well, then uh, people are just going to live however they want. Well, people, people made that accusation in the Bible, actually, to, to Paul in Romans chapter 5. Paul makes this bold claim that uh, grace, um, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we screw up, God's grace is always greater than that. And he said, what are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's argument is not that it's impossible to sin or to not walk faithfully with the Lord as a believer. It's that we shouldn't because it's no longer who we are. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So um, the point that James here is making is not that we don't have an, a real faith, but it's that it's inactive and it's not useful and it's not profitable. Um, to close out, um, I wanted to compare it to a passage in Second Peter chapter 1 that I think Peter and James are kind of on to the same thought. And I think it might be helpful for us to read that. It's a, a little bit lengthy, but I would just ask that you guys read. I put it on the screen so everyone can um, keep up with it. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. I might make a comment or two uh, throughout it, but it says this in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So their faith is that they've obtained is of an equal standing um, with the apostles, these people who were, you know, giants in the faith, right? But their standing before God is the same because it's the imputed righteousness of Christ on their behalf. It's the fact that Jesus is good, not the fact that I'm good, that we're equally standing at the foot of the cross. I think Pastor Ryan hit on that. He said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's really what Peter's saying here. He says... May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So to us, he's talking to believers, right? His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has uh, granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of 
of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he's talking about, we have been made partakers of the divine nature, meaning uh, we have the spirit of God living in us, meaning that we have God dwelling within our hearts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are partakers of the divine nature. And, and he's equipped us with everything we need to live a, a life of godliness. Um, and, and we've been forgiven of our sin. Uh, he said, so verse five, for this very reason, because um, you've received this faith uh, of equal standing, right? Because you're saved. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That would kind of fly in the face of um, works are always a necessary component of someone who has genuine faith. Because Peter says, because you're saved, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, um, which virtue is, is really like good works, uh, things that display, it's, it's like demonstrated faith. Make every effort to do that. It's not implied, it's encouraged. It's challenged. And, and I do believe, don't, don't think that I'm teaching that um, all of us are going to get saved and many of us are going to do nothing for the Lord. I do believe by the power of the Spirit of God living in us, He's going to give us new desires. He's going to lead us into good things, but we still have the choice. Am I going to walk by the Spirit or am I going to walk in the flesh? And that does not get removed from us at the point of salvation. We have the choice as believers to walk with Christ or walk in our own way. So I want to keep reading. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Then in verse 8, he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to be useful, we've got to continue to add on to our faith. That's what Peter's saying here. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. It doesn't say that they're not saved. He says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Not that they weren't cleansed from their sins, right? It's that if we're not living in a vibrant faith that produces good works, we're forgetting the cross and the fact that we've been cleansed of our former sins. It's not a question of, have I been washed by the blood? It's if you know that you've put your trust in Christ, that your, your dependence for why he should let you be with him for eternity is his goodness, his grace, his work, not your own. You're just resting in that. That's salvation. That's justification. That's being declared righteous before God and being made right with him. But as a result of that, Peter here and James in our passage is saying, you got to let that, that faith is useless in the Christian life if it's not producing good works. Oh, I want to read one more, one, a couple more verses right here. Uh, verse 10 and 11 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. I don't have time to break down that. There's a lot of viewpoints on that. But it says, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Um, verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't say in doing these qualities, you'll earn uh, a standing before God. It says that um, there'll be richly provided for you one. 
because we believe that there will be works that will receive reward. And that, that's what Peter's talking about there. But <coughs> Excuse me. Um, in closing, uh, we talked about the conflict about this passage, the context of the passage, the content of what it says. And then in the conclusion, I, I want to read verse 17 to us again. It just says that, um, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I won't take the time to read the passage in 1 Corinthians 3, but Paul articulates um, the believer who can, um, you know, we, we can accrue either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, and that the testing fire will burn up the wood, hay, and straw, but only the things um, that are useful will, will endure it for eternity. And those things will result in honor, glory, and praise for our, our Lord and our Savior. So, so imagine standing before Jesus, um, because we will, and our works being tested before him. And I wonder how much of our lives is going to be burned up, never to be useful again. We'll be saved by the grace of our Lord, but our works will amount to nothing. If our faith doesn't produce good works, we're missing what God desires for us as believers. Because I want to read, I mentioned Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I want to read 2, 8 through 10 to kind of give us this, the purpose of what God desires for our lives. You guys, you know, we come to church every Sunday. Um, a lot of us, you know, we feel like we're doing the, the good things. And those, those are good things. Like keep bringing your family to church, keep pouring into them, keep investing in that way. Um, but it's not just what we hear. A lot of times we come and we're like, I want to be fed. I want to hear something good. It's just head knowledge and it's just information and it's just belief that doesn't profit anything if we don't live it out. So I want to challenge us this morning that as James is challenging them, he's saying, what's the use of that? What's the point? I told you guys that... Um, I mean, I'm all over the place. I'm going to go back to Ephesians 2, and then I'll say that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then he says, For we are his workmanship, in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So this grace, this gift, God took a risk on you and on me, knowing that his selfless love, God's love, by the way, is not a love that's like a bargain with us. If, if I love you and show you this love, you have to show me your love. God took a risk and showed selfless agape love. He gave freely regardless of what he would get because God is not incomplete without us. He is fully sustainable on him by himself. God is perfectly sustainable himself, but he wants a relationship with us, so he freely gave this gift of eternal life to all who would call on his name and put their faith and trust in him. And he, he welcomes us by his blood. He didn't just give us that gift. He gave it at a high cost. This is not cheap grace. It's not easy believism. It's Jesus paid the full price for our sins. There's a lot of work involved. It's just not ours. It's his. The work that was put forth in our justification and our being made right with God was done by God himself in sending Jesus to die in our, in our place. 
But as a result of that, it's not that he said, if you don't continue in good works, you're not actually saved. Instead, he says, you're my child and I love you so much. But as a loving parent, I'm not going to ever force my child to do good works all their life. And uh, I'm going to encourage it. I'm going to discipline when there's not. I'm going to do all those things. But ultimately, she still has a free will. And Owen, my new baby, shout out to baby Owen, who's just born a couple weeks ago. But uh, he um, will have a free will. He, he will have the ability to obey, disobey, do good things, not do good things. God gave us such a selfless love, knowing that we may abuse his grace, that we would abuse his grace, if we're totally honest. We abuse his grace sometimes. But also knowing that that kind of selfless love can be imitated in us because he gave us his spirit. He desires that we, as his workmanship, would do good works because he didn't just save us to give us a ticket to heaven. He saved us to imitate his character to the world around us. We're living in a dark, um, depressing uh, time in life. So many people are struggling, so many struggles that we walk through, so many that we talked about even in this letter. But James is saying in the midst of all of that, we have the ability to walk with Jesus, to do the good things that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Um, I told you guys that when I was younger, I, I had a season of my life, you know, that I was really rebelling. And I, I mean, I, I made horrible choices. I wound up um, really living out on my own and then uh, started because I didn't really want to uh, be taken care of by family or this or that. I just moved outside. <laughs> I just basically became homeless as a teenager. And uh, I, I was um, drinking a lot and I was smoking a lot of pot and doing all kinds of stuff as a believer. I, I knew the truth, but I wasn't walking in freedom. I, I, it was useless. It, it was profitless. There was nothing there. And at some point I actually started to think, man, I must just not be saved. I, I must not know Jesus because my work's not good enough. But it was, it was his kind, the kindness of his spirit that drew me back to repentance to recognize, and I, it's not what I do. It's what he's done, and I've been taking advantage of that. Let, let me take this down one more notch. Not only was my faith dead when I was doing those things, there's been seasons as a pastor, even here at this church, that if James, if I were to take to heart what James is saying, he would probably say my faith is dead, even in seasons of my life here. And the reason I'm saying that is if our faith isn't actually producing what we believe, then it's dead. It's useless. And as believers, we can walk in that. We can continue to um, argue with our spouse over and over about the same things because we will not humble ourselves. We can continue to have a short fuse with our kids. But what's the use in that? We say we, we, we believe in Jesus, we believe his word, and he gives us all this counsel. And it's like, yeah, that's good stuff, that's good stuff. But, but we're not willing to walk in it. We're not willing to let our works show it. Um, so I just want to challenge you. I want to take just a moment here to pray. I'm going to pray out loud. And again, I want you guys to do what we did at the beginning. But this time, I want you guys to pray inwardly. God, will you reveal to me, where's my faith dead? What's useless in the way that I am walking with you right now? Um, and, and maybe you're here today and you recognize, Man, I've never put my trust in Jesus or maybe my whole life I thought I just had to earn my standing with God. You're saying this is a gift? Maybe that's you. 
If that's you, I, I would ask that you would come forward as we're praying. And if you, if you do, um, we'll close that service and we'll talk to you uh, after that. But um, man, I'm going long today, but uh, I just want to ha- have you guys pray. Really, let's take this time. Don't think about the people around you. That's what he just told us not to do. Don't be partial toward others and other people's sin or anything, but let's look inwardly. Right now, I'm gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna pray for us. You guys look inwardly. God, reveal to me, what do I believe? I believe in you. What areas of my life don't reflect that? And help me to walk in it so that I can, it can bring works that result in honor and praise and glory when you're revealed again. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We're thankful for the cross, the free gift of salvation that you offer to everyone who would call on your name and believe in you, Jesus. We're so thankful that you've been gracious to us, God. None of us would be standing here if it weren't for your grace. God, I pray that you would help us not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers. God, I pray that you'd help us to have faith that's vital. God, faith that is um, that impacts every area of our lives. Help us to continually recognize not in, a, not in a legalistic way, but in a way of like, God, you've been so good to us. We want to live our lives for you. We want you to be honored in the way that we parent, in the way that I act at work, in the way that I uh, handle my money. In every area of my life, God, we want you to be pleased. So where in our lives, God, show us right now, show me, how am I not being obedient to what I, what I believe? And God, change us, transform us more and more. We, your word says that as we behold your glory, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God, I pray that you'd help us to behold you, to see your goodness. And by your spirit, by your power, God, that we'd reflect that in our own lives. We love you so much, Jesus. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.